0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the show is Colonel Leonard D. Fran Chi Shi, who I'll call Colonel D. from here on out. Colonel D is a retired career Marine. He's actually our first person to be back on the show after just recently recording Civil Affairs and the Second Battle of Fallujah, which is a great podcast about the specific role that Civil Affairs conducted during the first, second Battle of Fallujah, 2004 in Iraq. Really honored to have him back. And we're having him back because there was just so much more that we could have talked about. And we wanted to talk about really after the battle and rebuilding of Fallujah. Sir, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, John. It's great to be back. I appreciate it and glad that we were able to uh, cover the initial phases of the battle. In the last one, if you haven't heard it, please listen to it. It is really focused on phase three. Actually, really you can go back even to phase two, phase three. So this will be phase four of the battle of Fallujah that occurred in November. And before I get into the battle itself, I, I do want to talk a little bit for the benefit of the listeners about exactly what a magtaff is, because I think it's critical to the way the Marines fight. And it's not unlike other services, but the Marines definitely preach it and they live by it. And so- For the benefit of the listeners, I wanted to explain what that is and the MAGTAF, because you'll hear me say that, and I want to make sure everybody understands what that is. And the MAGTAF is a Marine Air Ground Task Force, not unlike a task force, let's say, in any joint or an army construct, but we call it a MAGTAF. And it has a combat service support element, an air combat element, a ground combat element, a headquarters element, which provides a command and control. In this battle, we also had the interagency involved, which was the Department of State and some embassy people. And there were some NGOs involved, the Red Cross. So there were a lot of people involved. So when I speak about the battle, so there was the fourth civil affairs group who was my parent unit, but we were basically essentially attached to regimental combat team one, which was part of the ground combat element. And I'll speak a lot about what we did but i do want to give total credit to a lot of players that were involved with this whole operation obviously it wasn't just us we were facilitating supporting enabling but there was a lot of really great marines and soldiers and interagency personnel and, and really all services were involved in, in some way and including the host nation the iraqi government and some municipal workers that were involved too so a lot of credit to all them And when I speak to this stuff, it's not only my unit that was doing this. These are things that were being done that we were facilitating or involved with, but a lot of people were involved. So I want to make sure that's totally clear. And so in phase four, so phase three, which we talked about last time was the assault. And that was really clearing out the enemy from the city. And we literally cleared the enemy out of the city completely. There was nobody left when this was done in the city itself the 16 kilometers of space in in the city itself there was nobody there and then we went into phase four which was transition okay so the objective basically was, In that phase was to stabilize the area, reestablish the economy, restore the infrastructure and transition back to the Iraqi government. Because let's face it, we wanted to transition as quickly as possible because running a city was resource intensive. So the more that the Iraqis can do in this, alleviate the pressure from the military or or the US forces and civilians that had to do it. So the faster we can do that, the better. And that was the goal in phase four. And what I want to say is it wasn't clear. I mean, it's not like one day there was a, basically you had the operations order, which was the operations order that set up the whole operation for the Battle of Fallujah. And then we had a series of frag orders, but it wasn't necessarily clear like, okay, today we're in phase four. You know, yesterday we were in phase three, today we're in phase four. It was really I would say it was more like a three-block war. You had phase 4 going on in certain areas while phase 3 was going on. So you had clearing buildings, uh, eliminating the enemy in certain zones where we were doing con- conducting assessments and providing humanitarian assistance in other areas and then repairing infrastructure and buildings in certain areas. So it was, I, this was a classic three block war but i will say this you know you may ask me well hey colonel d you know how did you know you were in phase 4 well it's actually kind of a funny story because as the commander of detachment 4 i had a brief colonel Shupp, who was a great commander he was really demanding. And he was like an energizer bunny. I mean, He really pushed us because there was a lot to be done. And the guy seemed to be everywhere at, at one time, and literally. But I would brief him daily on where we were at. And my brief was typically maybe in phase three, it was typically maybe two, three minutes. But one day he kept me up there. I would say, I don't know, maybe it was two or three weeks into the battle. He kept me up there for a 45 minutes, and I wasn't expecting it to be up there for that long. And he kept me up there, and he was just asking me all kinds of questions and digging down into the detail and really getting into it. So he wanted it. So that to me, I was like, oh, and I even said I was joking around. I said, like, "Hey, sir, we're in phase four now," and he, we, all, you know, the whole staff kind of laughed about that. That to me was was kind of the signal that now the commander really has a lot of interest in this phase four part of the battle. I mean, of course, he always had interest in it, but now it was highlighted interest in and that's part of it. So back to the MAGTAP for a second. The key to the MAGTAP is everybody is working towards the same objective. And that was the objective of the commander. So it was combined arms approach. And we were an enabler in that combined arms approach. And everybody had to do a part of adding to how do we support the commander and his accomplishment of the mission. And I think in the past, and I had some problems with this, we may have gone off mission. We might have gone off the reservation and started doing things we thought were good, that sounded good, that we thought may be helpful. But if it didn't support the commander, he would put us in our place, say, nah, we're not doing that. Why are you doing that? And he would let us know right away. And we actually had a really good opso who... Kept us focused and made sure that we were staying on task. And the way we did that was in the FRAGOs, we would actually incorporate the CA elements into the FRAGO in the task to to the subordinate units. And the way it would be done was task and purpose. It was actually written out in the FRAGO the task that we had to do and the purpose for that task. And that was incorporated into an overall regimental. FRAGO that would be issued and we would have know exactly what we would do and it would be vetted by the operations section to make sure we were in sync with what the commander expected and what the operations section expected from what we were doing. So I wanted to kind of explain a little bit about that. I think that will be helpful a little bit for anybody who's doing something like this in the future to really make sure you've, you know, whether it's a MAGTAP or another task force, just make sure that what you're doing, your CA missions that you're doing absolutely are in sync and alignment with what the commander is trying to accomplish. If we don't do that, we give civil affairs, which we've done in the past, I've done in the past, things that were not quite in line with what the commander had in mind. So in phase four, I mentioned last time we were doing a lot of assessments in what I would say it was At the heels of the clearing, we got a good understanding of the damage. And there was significant, significant damage in the city. In certain areas, it was catastrophic, I would say. I mean, literally flat. And some of the main areas had that significant damage. So we assessed that. We gave the commander an idea of what what that was and what we felt was the priority for what needed to be fixed. To repopulate the city, so it was about after we cleared the city. I mean, when I say clear, there was nobody there, no Iraqi civilians or uh, insurgents. It was just totally cleared out. That gave us some white space, so to speak, to get some things done and try to get the, the the city ready for a repopulation, which was about three weeks later. That's not to say that there were no civilians that came in. We did have some came in, but it was controlled on who would come in and come out of the city. We did allow, during this time period, a certain amount of construction workers and certain under very controlled and monitored situation, they were, people would come in the city. At this point, once the battle kicked up, I was living in the Fallujah liaison team, which was basically a CMOC. We were living there and also Camp Fallujah. Once the battle started and we went into the city, we lived in the city. So there was a mayor's complex and there was a regimental, there was RCT1 forward That was in the mayor's complex, and then the CA, we were there in there as well. Phase three was a division operation, two regiments, RCT1, Regimental Combat Team 1, Regimental Combat Team 7. As I mentioned in the last episode, RCT7 came from the west, so they weren't in Fallujah at the time. There was a economy of force being done in other parts of Fallujah while RCT7 was in Fallujah, participating in this so we can mass forces to actually overwhelm the enemy once we cleared rct7 left um, regimental combat team 7 left uh, fallujah and so it was back to just rct1 as the main part of the ground combat element so they went and they did help by securing some of these outside towns and also they went back to where they were before the battle started so some of the things that we did I mentioned this before, but we did the assessment. We we figured out where the individual nodes of the critical infrastructure were and then the system and how they all work together. And so a lot of the systems that were in place before had so much damage to them that we had to put temporary measures in place to provide for the local population while we did the longer term repairs. For example, we put, I think it was like 25 gigantic containers. These were normally would have been sewer con- system containers, but we used them for water. They were brand new. We, we brought them in. We filled them with water. And this they, these were really large containers, and they allowed for the civilians to get water while we were repairing the water infrastructure, while we repaired the pipes and got the the uh, water system back online. Also, the electrical, the same thing. We had generators. We had a lot of generators, and we put generators in various areas of the city to allow for electricity to power the grid, so to speak, while we had repairs going on for the power station. And there was you know there wasn't. I don't think there was any electrical lines up anymore. So every almost all the electrical lines had to be replaced. And then there was rubble everywhere. I mean the streets were were just littered with rubble. So what we did there was we we brought in some contractors from Baghdad that had some uh, significant heavy equipment and they would help clear the rubble. But we also one of the CA teams, Captain Henniger from Third Battalion, Fifth Marines, and their Marines there. We actually brought in some. Unemployed military aged males. We joked that they probably were previously were fighters who laid down their arms, but in any case, they were there. They wanted to work. And so they came in and we, we gave them shovels, wheelbarrows, and they started clearing rubble. And so they became part of the solution. They were out there sweeping streets. They were, we actually paid them and they actually went to work and they were happy to do it. And I remember this was very, we had a lot of discussions about this. You know, why are we giving. You know, these guys shovels, they may use them for IEDs. But what we did was we gave them flat shovels, not spades so that were very hard to dig with these kind of shovels. And so it helped, you know, mitigate that issue. So we brought in workers to help clear the city of the rubble. And one of the things which is re- this is a real good news story. And and I don't think it ever really went beyond the people that were involved. I, I don't think it ever made any kind of national news. I mean, it should have. What we did was we gave humanitarian payment for every single head of household in Fallujah. So there's 35,000 homes in Fallujah. And each home basically had a public distribution system ration card, so to speak. So each month they would go in with these cards and they would get an allotment of rations that were paid for through the government from the oil for food program. So at the national level, they would sell oil, sell oil and they use those revenues and they would give rations to people. So everybody who had a ration card, and every head of household had one got a $300 payment which was quite a bit of money by Iraqi standards. We gave this money out in a matter of 1 week. So we basically injected I think it was 6.6 million dollars into the economy in the hands of the local people in 1 week. And literally overnight the city came back to life in terms of businesses opening, people cleaning up the place, building their own fixing up their own houses and stuff like that. It was it was incredible. And a lot of people said to me, you know, well, how do you know that somebody's not going to go through the line twice with a ration card and, and get paid twice? I mean, what are the controls here? I said, who cares? I mean, honestly, somebody gets $600 instead of $300. I mean, does it really matter? So it worked out great. And we were getting money. People were now inv- turned their focus in on rebuilding the city. And the fact that it was only a very short amount of time that it was available to people really kind of limited, you know, somebody coming in through the line two three times because it was a very short window of opportunity for you to be able to do this. So that worked out really well.
0: Man, it seems like a lot. And I'm sure anybody who has ever been involved in city administration knows this a lot. Was there a prioritization of the work that you were doing or going your next steps you set out to do? Was there some type of acronym that nowadays we have, of course, different acronyms that were developed from the hard lessons learned about civil administration of whether it's sweat MS or, you know, sewage water. Was there a hierarchy or were you just putting out fires on a daily basis? It's all fascinating to me in in a little bit of research I've done and there are some almost immediate steps, like you gotta get the like you talked about in the last episode, dead body removal, IED removal, rubble clearing, why citizens are coming back into the city, which I I'm sure is overwhelming. And I've had I think it was a past guest that talked about the manpower it took basically man checkpoints so that people coming back in could be searched on the way in to include female Marines, searching all the residents coming back in, everybody. It was a very controlled, which was surprising to me when you're dealing with this magnitude of people. I'd be interested on how you kind of prioritized all this work.
1: We didn't have an acronym like that at the time. Maybe one existed, but we didn't know what it was. What we did was I just used the Maslow's hierarchy needs. You know, There were certain, what I would call it, Things that were essential for human life were the things that we had to do first and get done first. So hospitals and things like that were the things that we focused on first. And then there were, you know, low-hanging fruit, of course, things that we can get fixed early, and we would do that. So it was more of that, you know, the, the essential services that were met, accomplish human needs. Those were the first things done. So the, like high on the list would be hospitals, and low on the list was. Reopening schools, which you know, I'll mention that. So there was a list of things. That's kind of how we prioritized it. And what I would say is, and you brought up a good point that nowadays they call them. I think in Afghanistan they call them female engagement teams. But at this time, they were. It was, this was one of the, some of the first times that this was actually done, and it was called the Lioness Program. Hats off to a lot of females that that did go to, the, to these checkpoints side by side by Marines that you know, male Marines, are, to help culturally appropriate uh, uh, women to get through the city because there were a lot of checkpoints and it was very man tower intensive to control the flow of people into the city. So does that kind of answer your question? We didn't really necessarily have an acronym. We just used kind of the essential services that, you know, most important to human needs, kind of the Maslow hierarchy needs system of how we went about prioritizing things.
0: Yes, sir. You're bringing back all my own memories, which is fascinating. To include the ration cards, which people think is not very organized. But if you've ever served in Iraq, you know that they have a very systematic way to manage it. And individuals on the ground who manage local areas that control the the ration cards for that area, he has a list of everybody. It's very controlled. And I imagine some of this will come out as you continue to talk about this massive effort, but I'll have questions about you know what exactly do you need? Of course, you need a CMOC, you need civil affairs trained personnel, but I know there's a lot more to that, but it did answer it. Yes, sir.
1: I'll tell you, actually, this is kind of a funny story, which kind of relates to what you're saying, a sidebar conversation. But one of the things that I'd brief to the regimental commander was you know the infrastructure and what, and he would give guidance too. I mean, it wasn't just us coming in a vacuum and developing this list. The regimental command, we want this list fixed. And he would give us guidance on this stuff during the meetings. But one of the things that we would brief every day was the fire department. And it almost became kind of funny because the regimental commander in this would joke, like, why do we need a fire department? And I was like, every good city needs a fire department, sir. And it almost became kind of a running joke within the regiment. And then one day, we got a call over at the headquarters, say, hey, there's a fire. There was, there's a vehicle fire. And so we, had, we got to call the fire department and get them to get run over there. And they, they actually came out with fire trucks, regular fi- just like you would see in any big city. Luckily, the fire department, only one of them got smashed that I recall. I think they had six. One of them got completely smashed, but somebody had was smart enough to drive those fire trucks out of the city before the battle started. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. So they drove them out. These, you know, obviously a fire truck is a pretty expensive piece of equipment. If that thing gets destroyed, they're not so easily replaced. But they, we did get them back. And actually, the fire trucks helped provide water to people that needed water. While and that was one of the hasty measures we used to help provide water to people while we we're putting up the tanks. So it was a hasty way of water provision. But, you know, we were able to scramble the fire department to put out the fire. And everybody, I said, hey, sir, we put out the fire. The fire department was used, today was called. And he, everybody, Steve started laughing. Everybody in the regiment started laughing. You know, it's a little kind of funny anecdote that happened in the middle of this whole operation. But anyway, so I'll just give you a kind of a list in this, because I, I kind of had a, some notes of what we did from the, this period. And it was what was restored was five water treatment plants, one hospital and three clinics, three electric distribution centers and you know electrical wires all over the place, nine sewer lift stations, one LPG distribution center, five gas stations, and one fuel storage depot, two banks, communication system, including the cellular telephone service, was reestablished. Education, 25 schools reopened. And we didn't really get into the schools probably until after December. I remember actually it was Christmas, December 25th, we were assessing schools. So that's way in, into the operation. So schools was kind of down the line. Emergency services, one fire station, one highway patrol station, and one traffic police. Public services, I mentioned about the working parties and then the garbage collection and public transportation. And then fixing the roads. There's a lot of damage roads, so we had to fix the roads, potholes, and that kind of thing. The other thing when one of the first presences of Iraqi government was we had these public order battalions and these were set up ahead of the battle. And we had, you know, Marine, there were Marines involved, liaison that were involved with them. And there may have been some Marine elements that were actually part of these public order battalions, but they they came in and they helped a lot too. They became kind of the face of the Iraqi government on the security side. They helped a lot like law enforcement and some security operations as well.
0: That's actually a pretty fascinating point for me studying urban warfare history about that immediate establishment, like you said, Maslow's hierarchy and security being way up there in human needs. I actually was not aware that there was a planned, basically security element set for the second battle of Fallujah after it ended. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. Public order battalions, we call them. And so, you know, there was various law enforcement agencies. There was a highway patrol and they were kind of functioning throughout because they weren't just focused on the city. And then there was the Iraqi police department, which which we disbanded because they pretty much melded in with the insurgency. So we had to completely reestablish the the police department. And we had specialists that came in to help with all this too. And I should give credit to them as well. Some contractors that came in to help provide expertise in in law enforcement and other things. So that's kind of the list of things that we had to work on. We got a lot of guidance from the regimental commander, and really the CAG too, the civil affairs group, which is our higher headquarters, had a role in determining what needed to be done. And we, of course, had to discuss all that with the regiment and he would decide on on the best approach. But our regimental commander, he really had a good sense of what was going on in that city. And he knew that he needed to get it transitioned over to the Iraqis as soon as possible. What we were doing really was on the security end of this, we were providing the white space to allow the Iraqi government to take root that's really, at the end of the day, what we were doing overall for this. So we were, obviously, the civil affairs guys, we had a lot of focus on the critical infrastructure in the regiment and a lot of the battalions and the, with the public order battalions, but the infantry guys, they were doing the security end of it to allow the other aspects of this to happen. So it was a team effort.
0: You'd also mentioned, sure, in the last episode about this book you had built before the battle, the technocrats, you basically all the key individuals that would need to go back to work immediately after basically security had been reestablished, established the enemy had been removed.
1: Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. So we developed a list and as much information as possible about the technocrats that could help us. The list of, of people that are in these positions that we can call upon once we cleared the city to get them back to work as quickly as possible. We focused on the technocrats the technical people, the municipal workers, not on the government, because that was something that was being done at the higher level, the CAG level and the MEF level, which is the highest level, the Marine Expeditionary Force, the highest level of the MAGTAF, in in coordination with the Department of State. So we were focused more on the municipal workers and getting them back to work, like the, the electrical department, the water department, the fire department, all these departments. And so we collected before the battle a list of who we could draw upon to help us. And that's a good question because when the battle started, they disappeared. They were hunkering down. There was a battle going on. They weren't going to go in the city. They left us. The and we had some really good connections at the New Water Treatment, what we call the New Water Treatment Plant, which was on the other side of the Euphrates River. We went there early on and said, hey, get ready. We're going to need your help to get the city back up and running again. And there was You know, it was a lot of discussion and we had built relationships with these guys. We had a lot of tea with them to to build a relationship. They know who we were. At first, they were kind of like, we're not going back in until we know that it's safe. But eventually they kind of got on board. And these are not soldiers. These were municipal workers. Some of them were older and they went in there. They were brave people. And I give a lot of credit to them. A lot of once we had a few starting to go in and we recognized them and they and they were like, yeah, you know, for the benefit of the people in my community, I'm going to do this. And they did. And I give them a lot of credit for that. And I'll, I'll have to tell you. So there were a lot of dislocated people and they were still for that three weeks when, when they weren't repopulating the city. They were all in these outlying villages that had a lot of people in them that were dislocated. In other words, when I say dislocated, there were people that normally would live in the city. Of Fallujah, but they left the city. So they were called dis that's their term, the dislocated people. I wouldn't say refugees because refugees is cross country. Dislocated means they are just left their homes. They're still in the same country. So it's a different legal status. So we went to some of these places and some of them were kind of scary. And you know, I remember one visit, we went to this place called Sokolawea, which was right on the outside of Fallujah. We wanted to talk to them about the law enforcement. And we went to the police station and There was a lot of scary-looking military-aged males that didn't look like they were from the area, and they didn't look like they were there, to because they were removed from the city for good reasons. And I remember going up to one of them, and I started talking to him, and he literally, I mean, if you talk about PSYOPs, he had a goat with him. He took a knife, and he cut the throat of the goat and bled it out on my boot. And I got the message. I said, "We're, we're leaving this place. We're not coming back here until we need to. So they have their own ways of doing psychological operations. And that was, that always, I'll never forget that day when that happened. Anyway, so one of the things that we set up in the city, uh, this was, uh, we had, I think, two of these. We had a humanitarian assistance distribution center. We had one with uh, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, and one with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And it was organized way of getting supplies. So we had a lot of supplies that we brought in. Some of them were from the public distribution system, and some of them were stuff that we had acquired in part of our Green Mountain buildup of supplies that we built. And so every day we offered people to come through and get supplies if they need them. This was getting towards winter. One of the things that we did give out was stuff like blankets and stuff like that. And this And I should have mentioned this earlier, but this is a good news story as well. Before the Battle of Fallujah, we knew there was going to be a national election. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, Fallujah was just a thorn in the side and we just kind of contained it. We never even considered Fallujah participating in the election. But kind of a silver lining in the whole story is that after this battle and we set up these humanitarian assistance distribution centers, we actually made those election sites or voting sites. And The city of Fallujah cast 8,000 votes during the the first election that Iraq, I think, ever had. And that was unthinkable before the battle. And I I think the Marines would say this is, at least my Marines would say, this kind of silver lining in the the operation was to see that election take place.
0: Yes, sir. I, I was tracking the election and I use it sometimes if I brief the history of the first and second battles. It's a contributing factor of the decision for when the operation was to happen was that the Iraqi newly formed Iraqi government knew they had an election in January and basically a rogue city, safe haven, just wasn't politically feasible going into that election. It was a contributing factor in my mind to the operation being given a go ahead.
1: You have that right. That is 100% right. The election was at the higher level, was one of the driving reasons for the battle taking place. Other than it being basically an insurgent stronghold where IEDs were planned from this place. There were, the bombs were built in this place. They were t- bringing people into Fallujah torturing them. Injured insurgents were being brought back there for medical treatment. Just the list goes on. And it had basically 15% or so were foreign fighters. They weren't even from Iraq. They were from other places. So that's exactly right. It was a, uh, an important reason for this operation to take place was to and make sure it was included in in the election, or else, you know, in fairness, to the Alawi and the Iraqi government, interim Iraq, how can you have a valid election if not everywhere can participate? So, you know, I think that's an important
0: point. I did have a question, sir, about, you mentioned about kind of the higher level decisions, especially the civil affairs group. As I, you just mentally have gone through kind of, what does it take to rebuild a city course you gotta have all you gotta get security up and so people feel safe walking on the streets. You, you gotta get these human needs, water, food, you know, all all these things, medical, of course. But there, you do have to reestablish administration, right? Cause you know, especially as you have all these resources flowing in, there has to be people from the community making the decisions and helping in the administration of such a large city. When did you start seeing these higher level personnel being established and being a part of the process, you know, a mayor, a system administrator, you know, those kind of things.
1: Good question. And I, and I didn't mean to sound like, you know, when I started talking about technocrats, that that's what we focused on, that, that there wasn't actions being done at the government level for the actual, you know, administrators. And ma- there was a mayor, there was other leaders that identified themselves as leaders and whether or not they were valid leaders or not, we, we had, they had to be vetted but a lot of that was happening at the CAG level. So I was a detachment. I was attachment four commander with the regiment. And then there was the CAG that was really with division and they would run meetings to bring in government people that would provide the leadership for all this. It wasn't really a role that in my level with my people, it was more done at the higher level, other than that we would be talking to them, you know, CAG people that were doing this every day. But they were doing a lot of really good work in that regard. They were working a lot with the interim government and Department of State and a lot of other officials that were involved with putting the leadership in place, to, the rightful mayor. I think there was a couple of people who said they were mayor and we had to figure out which was the rightful mayor, you know, which was the right guy. So all of this stuff had to be done and the CAG did a great job in my higher headquarters. you know, The unit that I came from did to that effect. And we lived actually in the mayor's complex, which was the mayor's complex before this whole operation started. And so, you know, we had that place pretty secure. And we, where the actual mayor's building was, was an area that you know we brought people in to have some of these meetings for for that effect.
0: I remember I was a part of the the 2003 invasion and, and moved into Kirkuk. I know how complex this is at echelon, from the individual soldier on the ground up to, like you said. Interactions with the Department of State on making very big decisions and the daily work that has to be done. I mean, it's twenty-four hours a day, really. If you just think about a post-conflict, or even if you're in a post-disaster situation of getting a city back up to life, I did have a question about kind of your measures for the work that was being done. In some of my discussions, you know, it's human nature to to want to get things really well. You'd get them up and running to get. Everybody access to this or that, or to get this level of you talked about the economic injections. Since you had been on the ground before, was there active measures to say, let's say the one that usually people throw out to me is the power, right? So before the conflict, power was on you eight hours a day intermittently, or it was on twenty four hours a day, and you guys messed it up. Were there measures of the goals you're trying to achieve on essential services and and other work?
1: Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that actually because there was like, for example, power, not everybody had power even before the battle. So they had rationing of power sometimes. And so where do you need to be to, to say your, the job is done or it's adequate enough where we can say, you know, this no longer requires us. And I think there was a tendency and I think some mistakes maybe in this area where we were trying to maybe do more than where it was when we left. So that gets in the area of development. And I didn't want at least our guys and we didn't. There was no way we were going to get into this anyway, just in the amount of time that we had. So once you go beyond that, it gets into development, and that's where you start getting an agency called USAID, a United States Agency for International Development, and they basically can you have money and they execute contracts, and they're really good at this, this is what they specialize in, and they have ways of determining what was there and what needs to be done to to, you know, standard of measure, so to speak, of where it should be. But there was some metrics, some USAID metrics that we could use, like for example, the size of a police force. You know, to have a good size police force, you need to have this many police officers per thousand people. And so we had some of that as rough numbers of what we needed to establish security in a reasonable amount. You know, how many ambulances and do you need per thousand people? How many hospital beds do you need per thousand people? There is some stats like that that are available from the USAID. If you look in some of their publications, they got some of this, which helped us kind of determine what level you need to be at to say, okay, this is is workable. All that stuff though would have been way past our time there. Our time was just get the place running to the extent we can turn it over as much as possible to the Iraqi people and move on. Now, what I would say, though, is that my personal belief is military should stay out of development and just stick with reconstruction of essential services. We do have the security forces. You know, USAID won't go into an area unless it's secure enough for them to go into. So there has to be enough security for them to, to do their things that they're going to do. And so we had to focus really on on getting it to the point where they can come in and effectively do the job that they're going to do. What we term in civil affairs parlance is securing the victory. For us, that's what securing the victory would look like, turning it over to people like the professionals that do development. But that's I hope that kind of answers your question.
0: Yes, sir. And I know it's not an easy question, and I've I am not an expert by far. I actually did interview my own just as an insight from my own memories from struggling with some of this when I was on the ground. I interviewed our Colorado Springs, Colorado police chief, and some of those statistics just came right out, right? You're supposed to have this many. Policemen per population. This is how you determine patrols and stuff. I I think it's all fascinating stuff and just more and more resources that we can make available and quickly get access to at the point of need. And I think that might be one of my last questions for you, sir, based on this experience of not only being involved in one of the biggest urban battles of the modern generation, but also being involved in the rapidly rebuilding of a city. What advice would you give to future soldiers and Marines if they're thrust into a situation? where they might not have had the training, but from your experience, you might want to think about these things.
1: For civil affairs, I can't emphasize enough that you really have to focus on the unit commander's mission and what you can do to help the commander accomplish the mission. You know what? How can you enable it? What is your role in that? And it can be difficult, but smart people who analyze it, do the mission analysis and analyze it and do, do the steps. And quite frankly, you can leverage experts in this. We had some ninja planners that really had their way of getting to the right way of phrasing stuff. So you utilize the pros in this, but you have your focus on the civil affairs component and making sure And they're really good at integrating this stuff, but you have to be at the table to be able to talk about it and say, this is some of the things that need to be considered by the commander. And at the end of the day, if they don't consider them because they have other priorities, then don't have your feelings hurt. You got to remember, you know, the planners are planning based on the commander's mission and the way they see it. But your job is just to talk about the, you know, make sure that they're considered. And what I would say is to the people who are thrown as, look, we're Marines, and you know, we're riflemen, and we do the civil affairs stuff because it's our job. But we're riflemen. You can do this. You just have to do it and think about how you can make sure the commander is considering these things. So don't be intimidated by it. And sit up at the table and talk because if you don't, a key part of the, the mission analysis and the, and the actions that are taken are going to be missed if you're not actually there raising these concerns. But don't take it personally if if they're not acted on because there are priorities and got to work together in, as a team in the MAGTAP. It's just essential. And the where we ran into problems was when we didn't do that. And I have to say, I didn't do that all the time. I made mistakes. And I realized early on that. When I did that and, you know, commander called me out on it and I realized that, hey, man, I, I got it now. You know, we'll do better next time. So you're going to make mistakes. Just remember what I said. Just focus on the mission. Don't do what you think should be done. Do what, the, what needs to be done based on what the commander says. And I think then you'll be in good shape. But I do want to say one other thing, too. I, I know we're probably running out of time, but I'll try to make this quick. Mission planning and preparation, this, I'm going to talk about this because the NCOs are like this and I think it's important and it really helped us a lot. We did a lot of good work with mission planning and preparation. I'm lucky I went to ranger school and I had really good training by pros in this and it helped me with small unit leadership and I was able to really help the NCOs work this issue and I understood what they were doing with this. So you know, do it by the numbers when you do mission planning and preparation. And I mean, when you get an order, issue the warning order. Do a five paragraph order, write it, give it, do the inspections, do the rehearsals, especially the actions on the objective for each mission that you're going to do. We did that every single time. And our NCOs really stepped up and they did such a great job with it. At first, you know, we were reservists, so it took us a little bit. Of, but at first, what I saw was we just said, hey, we were huddled together. This is what we're going to do today, guys. I'm like, no, no, we can't do that. We're going to do this right. And we're going to do it by the numbers, with an order. And the steps I just said, it's not that hard to do. You just got to do it by these numbers. And by the end of the time we were there, we, it was like clockwork, You know, NCOs giving orders, terrain models, rehearsals every single time. And that helped because when we, got, we had to do an immediate action drill, people knew what to do. And they did it by those numbers and it really helped. So that, I just want to leave it with that.
0: Sir, as a former ranger instructor, I can't tell you how proud I am to hear a career marine emphasize the value of Ranger School. But beyond that, I keyed throughout the podcast, your mention of the commander's mission, the commander's intent, the task and purpose. I mean, it's all music to my ears, of course, but how it applies, to, no matter what your job is, no matter what part, it's our profession. It's how we how we are so powerful.
1: Yeah, and learned a lot from the, the Rangers and they pushed me to the, to the limit at the school. And uh, I always grew upon that. And I'm uh, thankful to people like you who did that that training for people, and it, it, it helped. It really does. So thank you for that.
0: Yes, sir. Uh, really appreciate your time, sir.
1: Sure. Absolutely, John, and glad to help.
0: Special thanks to the Civil Affairs Association and the 1CA podcast that helped make this podcast possible. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.